And maybe you've heard the phrase, you know, the elephant in the living room. It often refers to secrets or family secrets that are obvious to everyone, but they never get talked about. So the family secret is often the elephant in the living room. I saw this cartoon this past week. An elephant was lying on a therapist's couch. And the elephant was saying, you know, sometimes even if I stand in the middle of the room, no one acknowledges me. It's the elephant in the room. I think one of the elephants that's often stood in the middle of a sanctuary or a meeting room is that of depression and even discouragement, even anxiety. It's the elephant because it, it's a huge issue for some folks, but yet it never gets talked about. It never gets acknowledged in church circles because folks are often too embarrassed to admit that they struggle with it, thinking that they're supposed to be full of faith. And if they're struggling, they must be doing something wrong in their spiritual journey. So, so then we try harder to be more spiritual, all the time suffering in silence and in our pain. And the whole topic of depression came to the forefront this past week when the news of actor-comedian Robin Williams' suicide. Now, we know that he battled addiction for many years and that he was in the early stages of Parkinson's and he also struggled with depression. And I don't normally knee-jerk react to celebrity events and, and, and things of that nature, but it seemed like there was a conversation that got started this past week because of it. And I'm hoping it's a conversation that will continue and will be more open. And it was a conversation about depression, about anxiety, about mental health issues, if you will. Again, that often don't get talked about, but get buried and get put to the side because we don't know what to do with it. And I want to approach this today as a pastor. In other words, I don't claim to be a clinician. I don't claim to be a counselor. I don't even claim to be a therapist. I want to acknowledge the good work that all those folks do and would recommend them and even borrow from them. But I approach it this morning as a pastor who wants to speak about it in relationship to our own spiritual journeys and your spiritual journey and my spiritual journey. Now, statistically speaking, over a lifetime, there's some stats here, percentage of Americans who will suffer from diagnosable anxiety or depression is about one in three. This means this. In a church that averages approximately 110 in worship, about 40 folks, that means about 40 here this morning, give or take, are experiencing diagnosable anxiety or depression. And often those who suffer from anxiety experience depression and vice versa. And nearly one in five adults, about 40 million Americans, suffer from panic anxiety disorder. In fact, they talk about it being the number one mental health issue for women in the United States. And for men, it's second, with the first being substance abuse for men, which is probably a result of men trying to deal with anxiety and depression. When men have anxiety, when men have depression, how they deal with it often is they stuff it and they exit emotionally, and that's where the substance abuse comes. They call it numbing. If I can just numb the pain, then I won't have to deal with it. Now, these are statistics, but they have names. They are husbands. They are wives. They are sons and daughters. They are white-collar people, blue-collar people. They're factory workers. They are CEOs. They are people in our neighborhoods, people in our pews. 
their lay people, their pastors. These statistics are someone we know, and in some cases, they are us. It is you or me. Now, my prayer is that churches and Deep River Friends can be a place where folks can find healing rather than a place in which they feel they need to go into hiding, rather than hide behind our masks or our false self or our grin and bear it. We provide a space for healing to occur so folks can be on a journey to wholeness, can talk about it, can feel free to share it, can feel safe to say, I struggle with this and I need help. Now, what causes depression? Now, this is where I'm on thin ice here, again, because, you know, I, again, I'm not an expert. I only know what I know because of what I look up sometimes. But here's what they say. Some, it's genetic. Family history plays a role, can be inherited across family generations. It's good to know our family history. It's really good to know our family history, your family of origin. Is it there in one generation or another? That can often be significant. Trauma such as abuse, personal problems, job loss, relationship issues, illnesses, surgeries. Again, even abuse in our past can cause depression. Death or loss, grief can be a significant cause. Even the kind of grief over loss of certain abilities. We were able to do something at one time, but now we can't do it anymore. Or maybe the loss of a season in one's life, and now you're in a new season and you recognize that season. Sometimes anger is a source. I don't know if you know this or not, but depression is often not diagnosed but defined as anger turned inwards. We take the anger and we just turn it inwards. And we don't deal with it, we don't process it, we don't emotionally metabolize it. So what happens is it drains all the life out of us and we become depressed. It could be seasonal could be circumstantial, stressful circumstances in our life, entering a difficult season in our life. Now, for some, it's seasonal. I worked with a fellow in Indiana years ago. He was superintendent at Indiana Yearly Meeting, and I don't say this lightly. I say it with all honesty and seriousness. He came from California, moved to Indiana. That in itself was depressing. But he literally, literally could not handle the first one or two Indiana winters. Have you been to Indiana in the winter? It is like Siberia in many ways. I mean, it's gray, it's flat. um, It's gray, it's flat. (laughs) You come from palm trees, sun. So in some ways, seasons can affect us. Displacing one's own needs. Now, this is huge that we often displace our own needs. We push down our own unique true self. Again, some have even said people who are creative, if you look at people who are artists in nature, creative people, they often struggle with it because they sometimes are constantly pushing down their creativity and their artistry. Sometimes they're told to get on with stuff more real and more pragmatic. Do, Do something that's more practical. And so they take all that artistry and creativity and they push it down or they have a vision for life to do something but they never can live that vision out. And what happens? it just kind of begins to suck the life out of them. There's one fellow years ago, St. John of the Cross, years ago, that talked about the dark night of the soul. It said, even on our spiritual journey, we face times where there is darkness, and God feels absent. God is nowhere to be seen. 
and it is just what it is. And we experience those moments as well, even in our spiritual journey. And then the last thing I would say is maybe kind of new, but I think it's real. It's 24-7 stimulation, the news, constant information. I will say this. Um, some of you know that Linda and I kind of did a scaling back. You know, we now do the, the, the really, really small, minute version of cable TV, which means like three or four channels, and I've got nothing to watch when I have insomnia at night. But one thing it did was it unplugged us. We don't even get the news networks on TV anymore. It unplugged me from constantly hearing everything. And I finally just started turning the radio off, and I noticed a huge difference in my soul. I was less stressed. I was less anxious because every time I heard something or saw something, I felt like I had to do something about it. Now, I still want to be engaged. I still want to know what's going on. But I think I can figure that out in about 15 minutes and read about it in the morning and then go on with my day. So there's something to be said about that. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Quaker author, speaker Parker Palmer shares his own journey of depression. He defines it this way. Depression is the ultimate state of disconnection. It deprives one of the relatedness that is the lifeline of every being. It is the ultimate state of disconnection, not just between people, but between one's mind and one's feelings. To be reminded of that disconnection only deepens my despair. It is the ultimate state of disconnection, not only between people and between my mind and my heart, but between one's self-image and one's public mask. I like the way he frames that. It is, in many ways, a feeling of disconnection from our own feelings, our needs, from our true self, from God, from who God has created us to be, and from other people in our life. And when we feel disconnected in that way, we feel out of touch, we feel separated, we feel isolated, and then we start isolating ourselves. I want to offer you just about three words this morning. And I know this is probably one of those things where if it's like an elephant, how do you start, how do, if it's the elephant in the living room, how do you start eating an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. This is a huge, big elephant, but I think it's important to start the conversation. These are these three words that I want to look at, condition, connection, and compassion, just real briefly. In looking at the journey through depression, I want to frame it formatively, in other words, from the perspective of spiritual formation. And for Quakers, one of the more recognizable phrases is the one from Fox, after he came to know the living Christ, and in a very real and personal way. And this is what he says, only one could speak to my condition, Christ, and this I knew experientially. Each of us brings to our life journey a condition where we are in our life, who we are. And no matter what that condition is, Christ speaks to that condition. And the condition of depression is not out of bounds for Christ. As something that is very much a part of who we are, it's very much a part of what Christ pays attention to in our life. You read the life of Jesus. He faced desolation. He faced forsakenness. Jesus even faced darkness. So he knows what we feel and what we experience. And so our condition of depression is not a failure in Christ's eyes. It's not our inability to have faith. It's simply who we are in that moment. It's our humanity. Christ doesn't love us any less. 
doesn't think of us any less. And it can be in those moments that Christ can speak to our condition. Maybe speak directly to us through others, through a moment or through an experience. But the first thing I want to say is our condition is very real, but it's also very important to Christ. It's not something we have to hide from Christ. It's not something we have to be embarrassed from Christ. Christ speaks to our condition regardless of what it is, no matter how anxious, depressed, melancholy, joyful, hurt, abandoned we may feel. Christ speaks to those conditions. The second word connection is this. Parker Palmer talks about this ultimate disconnection being part of the journey. Reconnect with those parts of yourself that we have cut off, or that you've cut off, that you avoided, you've alienated, you've numbed. Those parts that bring with it sadness, shame, guilt, and even anger. And I, and I say that because often when we disconnect from those parts, it's those parts that are somewhat the source or the root. When I reconnect with my sadness, my shame, my guilt, even my anger, I can begin to explore in a tough way but courageously the very things that may be causing my depression. It's important to reconnect with those parts of ourselves because we tend to bury them, to name them, and to acknowledge them. Reconnect with our deepest, truest self, the unique you that's created uniquely in God, the you that brings wonderful gifts to this world. Sometimes depression is a result of us having buried this unique person. We've forged a life's journey out of trying to be what everyone else expects us to be. And we've just taken that other unique person and put it to the side. And I would say this, then very importantly, reconnect with your lifelines. Now, what do I mean by lifeline? I have two lifelines in my life. Let me look at my time. Two lifelines. Three, actually, but I'll get to that third in a moment. But two lifelines. One is a covenant group of pastors that I meet with on a regular basis. Been doing this now probably for seven, eight, nine, ten years. And we are brutally, brutally, brutally in love, honest with each other. I've never been with a group in which we say what we need to say, all bets are off, skeletons out of the closet, we go off and take an annual retreat together, and we just put it on the line. We talk about our lives, we talk about our hurts, our pain. we talk about our congregations, so you come up in this every now and then. We talk about who we'd like to have and who we'd like to trade, I'm just kidding. But it's a lifeline. It's my covenant group, my support group. I would say reconnect with those lifelines of people in your life that you can be brutally honest with, that create that safe space for you that no matter what you say, they're not going to run. They're going to be there with you. The other lifeline is this, and I really wrestled with this, to say that I went out and mowed the yard for 45 minutes last night thinking, should I say this? And it's not any big kind of... Dramatic revelation, it's just my own anxiety and nervousness about being honest with you. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with my authenticity. And this is, this is it. The lifeline of sometimes a counselor. Eight, nine years ago, I started seeing a counselor. Do I still see a counselor? Yes, I do. Because I made this determination in my mind, and this is what convinced me. I realized that some people pay more attention to taking care of their car than they do their soul. I took my car in 
every 5,000 miles for a tune-up and a checkup. Put down $30 to make sure my car runs well. And I wasn't even willing to do regular tune-up and maintenance with my soul with a counselor. And I found out that if I did this on a regular basis, I was a better person. I was a better person for those around me. I was a better person for you, hopefully. I was a better person for Linda and my family and my friends. And when I go see this individual, I do get the standard line, how's that working for you? And I do want to defend. I do want to debate. It just doesn't work. Because it's in those moments, in those very honest places, I have a person who can say to me, do you see the incongruity of that? Yeah, I do. Now, there's a whole lot of conversation about that, about how you want to do that, when you want to do that, your own personal time and finances. I would just say this. Don't ignore that lifeline. It's a pastor, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a counselor. And you may be saying to yourself right now, I don't know if I can take this. This pastor seems awfully human and broken and frail to me. And I'm going to say, absolutely. I'm glad you finally realize that. Because I can't be anything else but that. I can't be anything else but human. I have my anxieties. I have my moments of panic. I have my moments of melancholy and sadness. But hopefully and by the grace of God, I have become more aware of why they happen and when they happen. And I can become more self-aware along this journey. My third lifeline, I have to say it, I have a wife who supports me 100%. For a couple reasons. Number one, she does want me better. Second, because she knows how important it is both to me and to us. Never any shame or embarrassment, total openness about where we are in this journey. What could I do better? I could be a better person about disclosing to her what I'm learning and what I'm processing. But we're getting there. Oh, one more lifeline, by the way. Do stuff you enjoy, stuff that brings life to you, whether that's reading, running, walking, For me, sometimes it's just stealing away, no pun intended, to a baseball game. But take care of yourself. Do the stuff that brings you life and energy and joy because there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And the last thing I would simply say is compassion. The one person we have the least amount of compassion, the one person we are usually hardest on is ourself. When we practice compassion for ourselves, we're willing to do what we need to do in order to take care of ourselves. This means feeling as if you don't have to work it out all on your own. It means making decisions for yourself that have your best interest at heart. And sometimes it means not worrying about whether you're being selfish or not. It means doing what you need to do to care for who, care for who you are. And sometimes what best cares for your soul and your life and your journey. I mentioned my counselor, and one of the things she often reminds me is, she says, do you ever notice how willing you often are to displace your needs to make sure you manage everybody else's? And it's in that point I realize I have less compassion for myself than I do for others. And she invites me to have compassion 
for my own heart and soul and journey. Now, that might sound so self-serving, but it's not. We're invited to love others as we love ourselves and to love out of that place. And I just want to add this last, and I hope this is a conversation in process. But lest we think that we have to hold everything in, do you realize there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations? A whole book. It's a short book, but it's a whole book of the Bible. Do you know where the word Lamentations comes from? Lament. We as Christians, we as hard-working, work-ethic Americans need to know sometimes how to lament, how to grieve. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to express feelings. It's okay to express tears. And in this book of lament, we have these words out of Lamentations chapter 3. The memory of my suffering and homelessness is bitterness and poison. I can't help but remember that I am depressed. I call all this to mind, and therefore I will wait. Certainly, the faithful love of the Lord hasn't ended. Certainly, God's compassion isn't through. They are renewed every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We're going to sing that hymn in a moment. But that's what this writer says. I can't help but remember, I am depressed. But I call this to mind, the writer says, God's compassion isn't through. They are renewed every morning, and therefore I have hope. When we open up to God's compassion, to the newness of God's faithfulness, we find hope in many ways. We find hope in the small ways, the ways that says, I'm going to take just that one more step. I'm going to open myself up to someone's love. I'm going to do what I need to do to better myself. I'm going to care for myself. I'm going to do this one thing today because I know if I do this one thing, it helps help me do that one thing tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. I'm going to share with someone my struggle. Each day brings us opportunities for that hope. I hope this has been helpful. I don't know. I have no idea. I leave it in God's hands. But what I say is this. Christ speaks to our condition, whatever that condition is. Allow him to speak to it, to be who he needs to be with it, and to welcome it.